Hi, you're tuned in to 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. My name is Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today I'm joined by Marianne Koletsky from the Department of Comparative Literature. Hi, Marianne. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, it's great for you to be here. It's great to have you here. <laughs> so the reason I brought you on, I was looking through possible guests and I found your information online and I saw that you had read a book that I have read and that I've never actually spoken to someone else who's read. Uh, it's that a long book. book, so that's not that unusual. Right. So the book is 2666 by Roberto Bolaño. I assume probably lots of people listening won't have heard of that book either. So maybe you could describe it a little. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I can describe Bolaño a little bit. He's a Chilean writer who was an adult during the military coup in Chile, right, which put out of power their socialist government, brought Augusto Pinochet into power, a dictator who went about kind of systematically torturing a lot of people who had been involved in socialist and left-wing movements. Bolaño was actually somebody who was rounded up by Pinochet Eventually, he was freed, and then he became an exile living in different places outside Chile, especially in his later life in Spain, and kind of, in some ways, self-consciously cultivated a mystique around himself that involved things like heroin addiction, this, this real image of the sort of tortured artist. And so he has a number of novels that have been coming out in English in translation over the past 10 years. 2666 is the last one. It was actually published posthumously after his early death. And so it's an unfinished novel that was partly assembled by his editor. And it's surprising that it was unfinished because it is, as you know, Massive. (laughs) Possibly, I think... 900 pages? Yeah, exactly. Almost 1,000 pages in the English translation. So it's a sprawling book that's, that's hard to describe. It's, in some senses, a mystery. Right. Actually... I've never understood the title of it. Do you know what the title means? The title is a mystery in itself, and there have been a lot of speculations as to what it might mean. It's it's kind of an apocalyptic novel, right? So we right. could see it as looking forward to, you know, some year kind of associated with the number of the beast, 666, right? And maybe this is the year of the future apocalypse, but it's never directly referenced in the book. Right. So So that's one of the many kind of strange strange and kind of hallucinatory aspects of this book is is the title that's never explained. Right. Wow, so you gave like all that information about Roberto Bolaño and I knew none of that when I read the book. When you read a novel, do you find that you have to do all this research to contextualize it to really get the most out of it or I mean, I think there's so many ways into a novel and in general I always say the best way in is your own way in and maybe you'll tell me your own way in. For Bolaño, I had a specific approach, which is I actually hadn't read his work until I was actually in Chile in, what would that have been, 2006, and I was working at a newspaper, and that was when his work was just starting to take off in English translation. And so people at this newspaper in the arts and letters section, which was where I worked, were obviously really excited that this Chilean writer was taking off in a kind of worldwide way. And so I knew the sort of culture and the idea and the image around him before I actually read the work. And so it was kind of reversed in that way from how I usually do it, which is usually I pick up a book and, you know, something about it speaks to me. I think that's how most of us are. I don't know what it was about 2666 for you. I think 
probably that title. You know, I was just looking through books at a shelf. I was probably looking for, yeah, I had this phase where I was interested in uh, reading more Latin American authors. So I'd heard about Roberto Bolaño, and then I saw this book jacket. It looked really interesting. Like you said, it's a complete mystery. So I started reading it, and it had, I don't know, this kind of atmosphere to it on the first couple of pages, right? It starts with that mystery, right? Mm-hmm. Where the critics are like reading a book by a mysterious author. Maybe, I guess, he kind of saw himself in that. Was it a German author? It's that, a German author, right? yeah, yeah, with an Italian name, which is, again, this kind of constant uh, sense that you can't quite get a grasp on everything that's going on. So, right. yeah, he has a pseudonym, all kinds of strange kind of mysterious things around this author. Yeah, really interesting. There's a part in that book, I think it's towards the end, I always love this, like, when you're reading a book and the author kind of seems to be, like, justifying something about it, about what they've written. He basically just says, you should read long books because it's where the author really, like, can struggle with something. What do you think about that? Do you think long books are where we get kind of the most out of, or we get to see really what an author is trying to say? Or I also remember... uh, I read in the preface to um, Jorge Luis Borges, one of his short story collections, like basically said, you should be able to say whatever you want to say in five pages, right? So I guess, I don't know, that's like two interesting philosophies. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I think especially in the 20th century, we kind of see the novel especially going in two different directions, one of which is really condensed, the sort of Kafka mode where the language is is pared down and the book is often really short or someone like Kutzea, the South African writer who tends to write these, you know, kind of just hundred page long books or the really sprawling novel. For me, I've always loved the sprawling novel because of all the little rabbit holes you can go down. And, you know, I'm writing a dissertation on distraction. I'm very much a partisan of distraction. And so, yeah, things like Joyce's Ulysses, like 2666, where it's not all sort of sustained attention to one idea, but there are so many different kinds of modes of engagement and motifs that go away and come back. And what I think is so interesting in 2666 is there is really this one governing landscape, which is this desert border town called Santa Teresa. And it's really evoked, I don't know if you agree, but, but you know, so vividly as this kind of apocalyptic desert landscape And yet the book goes to so many different literal uh, geographic locations, right? Um, Ukraine during the Second World War and someone has a hallucination where they're traveling in China, I think, right? It really is able to go to so many places. And I think it still coheres, but there are just so many avenues of exploration. I like that. Right, yeah. I guess we'll talk a little bit about your dissertation in a second. But so basically you read... 19th century, more English literature. But I try to read the those like massive books by the postmodernists, by Americans, like uh, Thomas Pynchon and uh, William Gaddis. And do you ever read those books looking for like kind of or this distracted? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, it's, it's a really interesting question of kind of what happens to the distracted sensibility in postmodernism. And often I think we see it being cultivated really self-consciously in a way that that's not there necessarily in the 19th century novel where something a little bit more complicated is going on. But yeah, I think certainly, you know, with something like Infinite Jest where David Foster Wallace puts in his own footnotes, right, and it's kind of staging this process where 
you can get distracted and look at the footnote and come back to the text, right? There's a sort of constant splitting of attention. I do find that interesting. I think for me, there's something about Infinite Jest that it's a bit too neatly brought together. Something like 2666, it's it's a lot messier, and I actually I like that more. There are more loose ends. Uh, okay, cool. Can you just like give us more of an overview of your dissertation so that we know a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's a dissertation about distraction, uh, as I said, and it's it's really making two claims, right? And one is a sort of cultural history claim, and one is a claim that has more to do with aesthetics, you know, the discipline of kind of how we think about perception and especially how we think about our approach to works of art. So the sort of cultural history claim is really about the way that attention gets made of virtue during the 19th century. And before that, it wasn't really, and it especially wasn't in the sense that 19th century thinkers and the Victorians make it a virtue, which is that attention is this form of self-control, right? It's a way that you block out unproductive thoughts and unproductive impressions in the world to focus on what really matters, which in general is your work. And so I I give a history of that and of the way that, you know, attention is made into this form of self-discipline, and that actually excludes all kinds of interesting things, right, that you might notice when you're, you're not disciplining yourself so much to focus on these sorts of bureaucratic tasks, right, or problem solving, all the things the Victorians really like. So, so one of the cases I'm making is about how distraction is marginalized and it's made a problem in the Victorian era. And that's still how we think about it now, right, as something that we need to resist and avoid. And that wasn't necessarily true before. And then the second thing I'm doing is actually making a claim for, you know, why I think we shouldn't resist and avoid distraction. Because I think that so often really creative thinking or critical thinking thinking that sort of unsettles our previous paradigm, it comes about through moments of distraction, right? Because the thing that actually will make us think differently is something that's so outside our current framework that we only sort of see it out of the corner of our eye, right? And and so really there's something to be said, I think, for distraction as, as a mode of creativity or a spur to critical thinking, Right? There's something to be said for not just getting rid of it or treating it like a negative phenomenon that we need to avoid. We tend to think of the internet distracting us and having all of these all these stimuli coming at us as problematic, but right. maybe it's not. I think I think it's not necessarily, and I guess it depends. One of the things I do is to distinguish between different kinds of distraction, right? And I think there's a kind of distraction that actually takes us outside ourselves, right? You're on bar, you're trying to write an email or whatever, and, you know, somebody's, there's some dance crew that comes on the train or, you know, somebody's having a conversation about how their rent is going up. And those are all kinds of distractions that actually might attune us to a community and a public world. And also, you know, the distractions that come up in our own mind, right, where we're, we're going about writing a report, but we notice that something's a little bit off, right? And going down that route, like actually paying attention to that distraction could maybe lead us to a new way of thinking. So those kinds of distractions where we're sort of noticing something outside ourselves or something that we didn't expect, those are the ones I'm really kind of invested in. Something like our phones, I think, you know, it is distraction, but it's, it's not unexpected, 
in the same way that, you know, the breakdancing crew on BART is. Because if you think about the media on our phones, they're also carefully curated, you know, mm-hmm. for our pre-existing interests. And so in a certain way, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the kind of distraction that interrupts our usual habits of, of thinking and of perception. I think a lot of what we see on our phones and on the internet actually reinforces those habits. So there's maybe a different claim to be made for noticing things on BART or in the street that you don't expect and, and that aren't necessarily you know what you were trying to do than to be made for looking at your phone. I see. So it's sort of a distinction between distraction we choose for ourselves and distraction that comes at us unexpectedly. Yeah, okay. yeah our distraction that's, that's produced, I mean, not to be too much of a Marxist, although we can talk about that too, but there's, <laughs> I think, a distinction between distraction that's produced for corporate ends and distraction that comes about you know, in, in other ways, either from our own thought or from people in the world around us. When you read a novel, you kind of have to think about how it relates to what your research is, right? So I guess you're kind of perpetually distracted, right, when you're reading a novel? I mean, that's that for me is, is really a huge part of the question because what I noticed when I was reading all these treatises, especially these kind of slightly more popular treatises in the New York Times that said, you know, there's a crisis of the attention span, right? This is this is the idea. There's a national crisis of the attention span. No one can pay attention. And they would always recommend reading 19th century novels as a kind of workout of training your attention so that you wouldn't get distracted all the time, right? But yeah, exactly as you say, so much of those novels, in many cases, you know, it's not just about kind of moving forward with one particular plot. There are these little things that you get caught in. And not only are there sort of distracting details within the novel itself, but, you know, for me, the best moment, I think, always when I'm reading a 19th century novel, you know, if it's Tolstoy or something, is the moment when they say something about how, you know, and, and that's the way it is when you're talking to someone who's had one too many drinks. And, and you have that moment where you almost put the book down, or at least you look up from it, and you're like, oh, right, I, you know, I remember that other day I was talking to someone, and in fact, they had had one too many drinks, and it was that way, right? That right. It's actually the kind of cognitive processes that it starts are maybe more interesting and more pleasurable than just, you know, this rigid focus on getting on with the plot. Yeah, I've never understood this idea, like, where people want to just be able to read a certain number of pages and right. a certain amount of time, right? It's like you you have to just go with the flow of what you're reading, right? Like you said, you know, like sometimes this page might take a long time because there's so much that either maybe it's difficult to read what the author's saying or it's just everything the author is saying is like making you think about something else. Right. And then there's some parts of the text where it's just like, all right, this is getting me from one part of the novel to another part. And yeah, and that flexibility is really nice about novels. Yeah. yeah, that you can kind of have parts where you engage more intensely and parts where you step back. And that's what I find. So because I work on this now, I, I kind of am interested in, you know, the ways people read now and attention distraction in that context. And so I actually tried a speed reading program and I found it really anxiogenic and horrible because I don't know if you tried one. So these words just flash before your eyes and you can't oh, go right. back, right? And it's faster and faster. So it's not like listening to an audiobook. It's much faster than that. And the idea is that, you know, you'll just have to train yourself to take in the important essence of the text. But yeah, it's 
all the kind of fun of reflection and and unexpected thought and you know involuntary memory as Proust would say you know that's all lost uh when you're having these words flash before your eyes right what do you think is the point of a novel in some ways right to like what is what is the author trying to do and what are you trying to do um so clearly you don't think it's just to quickly read through and just get the basic plot line right yeah yeah yeah. I mean I guess it's a big question. Right. <laughs> Sorry to put that on you. <laughs> yeah, I guess I can only answer, you know, because we're in this academic world, right? It's like we can only answer by referring to other people who've maybe actually had the fortitude to answer the question. But I guess, uh, you know, so there's this Russian thinker from the early 20th century named Viktor Shklovsky, and his whole theory of art is art defamiliarizes the world, by which he means that actually, you know, you go around the world and you see things and interact with them so many times that your interaction with them becomes kind of automatic, right? And so you see a door and you don't actually notice anything about how this particular door looks, what color it's painted, you know, the weird notches in the side, because you just think of the purpose of it, which is, you know, you can open and close it. And so actually so much of what's rich about what we perceive is lost because of this process of automatization, because, you know, we need to go about the world and the ways that we need to go about the world make it so that our perception is more and more automatic and we don't really notice what's around us. And so for him, and I, I think I have to agree here, you know, the purpose of art is it it makes it more difficult to see the world. So you might have a door described in a weird way, you know, as like a panel of wood swinging on hinges. and And so you kind of have to work to figure out what the thing is and actually... In that way, art art allows you to see the world again, right? It's been made invisible to you because everything is so habitual, but now it's kind of returned to you in right. a new form. And so for me, I mean, I think there's a kind of a particular kind of literature that really does that. And I think that that is interesting to me, right? That ability to see things in a new way because you've missed them so many times, you know? And so it's not necessarily that you're confronted with a whole new reality, but that you see your own reality anew because it's been represented in a particular way. Yeah, that kind of fits in well with the distraction idea, right? Yeah, yeah, so so it's good. So I have a consistent maybe framework <laughs> way of looking at the world. But yeah, I, I think, so for me, that's maybe part of it. But I think, you know, People are making all kinds of different claims for novels now and for fiction in general. And, you know, so some people want to claim that, you know, novels make you more ethical because they teach you to sympathize with other people. I guess other people like these New York Times people I, I was talking about want to claim that they give you this great attention span. And then, you know, you can do data entry for 15 hours. So I think, you know, people are, are thinking about this question in different ways. But for me, I do think there's something about that, you know, just being able to see your your own world in a new way, and that's exciting. Right. And then kind of a related question, but a little different. Um, So we started by talking about 2666, which is this massive novel, which probably not very many people will read. I I don't exactly know what, uh, how to frame this question, but like, what are your thoughts on, on these novels that are, that these authors will like put so much of themselves into, but then very few people will ever read. 
versus um you know maybe like Hemingway or something mm-hmm. um where it's very accessible and not necessarily everyone like gets everything out of it but basically anyone could pick up Hemingway and read it Yeah, I mean, this is really a question for me, not just with Bolaño, but especially one of my dissertation chapters is on James Joyce and Ulysses, which is one of these books that's really famously, people say, not readable outside academia, right? You need to take it in a class. And I can't speak to how many people realistically will read Ulysses, just given the economic constraints that press on our lives, right? And the fact that I understand that if you're working two jobs and you have kids, It may not be your first priority, but I do think it's wrong to say that Ulysses isn't accessible in the sense that an ordinary person can't pick it up and read it, because I actually think, you know, one can, and and I think that a lot of, I mean, this this is a comment that's a bit critical of academia, but I think sometimes we present this idea that, you know, just because having certain knowledge could help you understand a work better it slips into the idea that you have to have all this knowledge to even approach it. And I think especially with something like Ulysses, you know, everyone who reads it, including people who have a really deep academic background in Joyce and Irish history and the canon of English literature, there are things that they miss or that they don't get. And there are other things that they pick up on just because they happen to be attuned to that particular thing. And so I think, you know, with Joyce, with Bolaño, I do think people can pick up these books and make their own way through them, right? Which doesn't necessarily mean having all the quote-unquote right knowledge, right? Right, But but that they are, they are stories, you know? And actually with both those novels, there are very vivid characters and there are really kind of governing sort of drives and questions and tensions and desires that I think anyone can sort of grab onto. Right. I didn't mean that... Uh... I hope I didn't imply that like some people can't read these books. I guess, um, you know, I'm uh, I have a science background, and so, I mean, I personally feel like you know anyone could do science, but there's lots of people who see math or see science, and then I I think their mind just goes blank, or they just don't want to do it, and they tell themselves they can't do it. And I feel like that's kind of what happens with these bigger novels, right? Like they look at this big tome. And they're like, Ugh, I can't read this. And then they just go for something shorter, more accessible in the sense that it won't take a lot of themselves to get something out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's it's a really interesting question. And I don't know if you have thoughts about it in the sciences of where that sense is produced. I mean, I think it goes further back, certainly, than just academia, right? There's something about the way maybe that K through 12 education works in this country that, you know, people who don't feel set apart for a certain discipline then feel like they can't even approach that discipline. Right. I I don't know if I've formulated enough thoughts on that to really uh, say something about it. But yeah, I agree. Um, I think it happens definitely in K through 12. You know, you can tell like just my memories of going through school by middle school, there are people who are just saying, oh, I'm not good at math. So I don't know when exactly that happens. And I, I guess it's hard to tell. Is it, is it something that educators could improve on? Or is it something that's, that people are going to tell themselves anyway? Or, yeah, I don't know. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there is, 
I I'm always kind of want to blame current historical and economic conditions. And I do think especially now, and you see it with our students, there is such a sense that jobs are scarce and resources are scarce and you really need to find the the one place that you can sort of maximize your potential, right? And so right. people don't want to waste their time doing things that they're not good at. Right. And I do think that that it's a lamentable situation, not only because I think you can get a lot out of disciplines you're not good at, but also sometimes you have to get a fair way into something to know actually whether you have an aptitude for it or not. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I don't know if it's that or exactly what, but I certainly, you know, I share your sense that in some ways it's, it's even a worse situation with people who feel like they, they at some point were set apart as not having a skill in math or science and now can't even approach knowledge produced in those disciplines. Right. Yeah. That's definitely something that, uh, needs to be worked on more it's interesting actually you brought up uh the job prospects idea and like how that affects what subject matters people look into because um you know not to not to make any comments about comparative literature but you know that tends to be like one of the categories that people say oh you know that's not gonna set me up economically right i'd never uh, heard that <laughs> oh no <laughs> now you're telling me <laughs> too far in well how did you power through that yeah you know i was a really interesting case because i actually started in the sciences which i hadn't told you before this moment oh, so yeah. this is a big reveal and then i it, it wasn't that i stopped liking the sciences but when i was in college i had a couple of classes in literature that really did something to me and so I, I decided to be an English major and from there it also wasn't a given that I would go to graduate school I spent you know time outside that doing other things I guess there they're kind of there's a way for me to talk about it at the level of graduate students and academics and and you know what to say about job prospects there and then also for undergrads when they kind of come and say I want to major in comparative literature so what should I do so I guess to talk about it with, you know, grad students and academics is in comparative literature and in many of the humanities fields and also in non-humanities fields, right, uh, there is this sense of a dwindling, a shrinking job pool, right? And a lot of that, especially in the humanities, is coming not because there just aren't jobs for people who study these fields, right? In fact, there are tons, especially in things like teaching writing or teaching intro literature classes, uh, teaching foreign language classes, right? Uh, and so often people will say, you know, you shouldn't have gone to grad school on that. You should have known that there were no positions. Actually, there are a lot of positions, but they're increasingly being switched over to temporary low-paying positions, right? So, so jobs that used to come with eventual tenure, with stable pay and benefits and time for research, now come with none of those things. And that is, you know, part of this larger crisis in higher education where tuition is going up and student debt is going up, but money spent on instruction is steadily going down. And so my answer in that regard is I think we really need to be fighting for better quality of instruction, which also means better jobs for ourselves and really for the restoration of public education, uh, you know, as something that is affordable and accessible to students, and that also provides 
living wages, you know, and, and good jobs and research potential and room to grow for the people who work in it. Sorry about that. <laughs> no problem. Um, so that's, that's kind of what to say about job prospects for academics. For students, I think there's, there's a kind of different thing to be said, which is I do think that, you know, being a critical thinker, being someone who can sort of creatively see an issue from different sides, being someone who can communicate clearly, I think those are all skills that can go into lots of things that don't involve teaching high school English or, you know, getting a graduate degree in comparative literature. So that's the kind of plug that I'll make for undergraduate majors. You just think writing in general just helps you in life and you could take that and apply that to any job, really. Yeah, I mean, I think writing is actually something that a lot of people are really scared of. It's it's kind of like math, right? right. It's, it's one of these skills that is so basic and we all have to do it all the time, right? Whether we're sending a text or, you know, we need to cut a recipe in half. But when it's named as a task that we have to do specifically, right? A lot of people freeze up, right? It's like, I have to write this report. I absolutely can't do it. I'm no good at writing. And so I think actually kind of becoming fluent and comfortable in communicating your thoughts in written form, I think, is is a massively important skill, and I think it feeds into a lot of jobs. Right. Do you uh, do you struggle with that still when you write? With the, writer's block? Yeah. I mean, I yeah, I think everybody does sometimes, and so there are a lot of there are a lot of books that have been written on this. There's one called How to Write Your Dissertation in 15 Minutes a Day, which does not do what it says on the tin. You can't actually write your dissertation in 15 minutes a day. But, um, you know, it goes through things that you can do when you have writer's block. Like, you, you kind of keep a sort of more casual first-person diary about what's going well and what's going badly in the writing. And, you know, at least that way, writing is also still a place where you can express your thoughts and not just this horrible task that looms in front of you. I guess so there's the initial block of getting started, but then whenever I write something, I'll look back and I'll be like, oh, it sounds terrible. Do you do you ever have that feeling? I think everybody right. has that feeling. Yeah, I mean, you have to say it's it's version zero, right? And right. everyone has that. And I know people who name their documents. It's kind of, you know, um, Dickens' article version horrible you know <laughs> and it's like right. Dickens article version really bad and then eventually it's like Dickens article like slightly acceptable you know if I've had a glass of wine and then, and then <laughs> right. finally it becomes like Dickens article um kind of okay right and and so I don't know I think sometimes it helps just to acknowledge that you have that feeling right do you uh you know you've you like read all of these novels by great novelists do you think they ever uh felt satisfied with what they had written (laughs) I mean it's really it's it's really interesting and it so much depends on who you work on so you know there's this story of John Milton who wrote Paradise Lost you know he was blind and so he had to dictate to his daughters but apparently every morning he would just call them into his room and he would say I have to be milked where the idea was that he would just produce this poetry in such a kind of natural, you know, unwillful, just free way that it was, you know, like he was a cow being milked, which is a weird image. Yeah. But that for him, it was kind of, it just happened so naturally in a kind of metabolic process. But for a lot of writers I work on, 
people, for instance, like Joyce, they really had a lot of problems while they were writing these texts. And yeah, I think I think it certainly helps to keep that in mind. I think that there's not such a correlation between, you know, being good at something and having a really easy time getting into it as we sometimes assume, right? And that maybe goes back to our questions about math and about writing. Right. I think we, we have this idea that we like as a culture that has to do with genius and it's that right. sort of Mozart image where you just sit down at the piano and you had no lessons, but you're just composing already, right? And I think with literature, there are certainly some people who are like that, but but there's not a kind of stable correlation between who writes great literature and sort of how easily they do it. It was really great to have this conversation. Thank really you so much. Yeah, thank you for being here. <laughs>